Hey there, this is Jose Nasir Faro, producer of Are We Still Talking About This? On this episode, we speak with victim rights lawyer, Carrie Goldberg. Her law firm, C.A. Goldberg PLLC, litigates nationally for targets of online harassment, stalking, and sexual assault. We discuss domestic violence, how to identify a dangerous relationship before it's too late, and Carrie and Jessica's personal experiences with harassment. Carrie's book, Nobody's Victim, Fighting Psychos, Stalkers, Pervs, and Trolls, is available for pre-order now. Links to C.A. Goldberg PLLC, as well as links to more information about Carrie and other resources are found in the episode description. Enjoy. So I think you're our first uh, non- either musician or comedian or writer so i'm not saying a lawyer is not creative <laughs> non-talented some, some, just yeah, I was like, just how do i back it. out of that one but um with the folks that are in quote-unquote traditional creative fields we often like to ask them if there's anything in their lives that really made them do the work that they do so i um i started the law firm like almost exactly five years ago and i'd already been a lawyer for like six years before i started it and I had been working, I've always worked with people who've um, been the victims of trauma. Like after, right after college, I worked for Holocaust survivors and Nazi victims for five years and then and went to law school at night because I, was, I became really obsessed with restitution, reparations, and the fact that, that suddenly there were all these new claims that Germany and Europe w- were giving to Holocaust survivors like for their suffering that came out like in, in like the early 2000s. Wow. And it was it was kind of mind blowing to me uh, this idea of you know some of my clients um, who survived like Mengele's experiments uh, got like a check for twenty five hundred dollars and it's like mm-hmm. it's it was just so crude to to put a dollar sign on on such horror and but I I, I was intrigued and obsessed with it and wanted to kind of do it I mean to to just be in that space. And so I was at law school and learning about torts. And, and, and when I graduated, I, I you know, I was, I, I was a shitty law student. Can we, is this a podcast where we can say shit and fuck yeah. and stuff? Oh, okay, good. I figured, I figured if Jessica was in charge. Um, uh, so I, I was a bad student and um, had trouble finding a job after, after law school, finding somebody who wasn't like, well, what's your GPA? What's your, <laughs> what's your, what's your rank? But I, I still I um, managed to actually ha- get an awesome job doing landlord tenant work and then representing low income people who were being evicted from their Manhattan p- apartments, usually elderly. And then I went to work uh, for incapacitated people who were had been ex- like extorted and, and um, exploited physically, sexually, financially. And. I, I was about four four years into that job at the Vera Institute when I found myself like a victim myself. <laughs> I'd oh. been working with victims for so long, but I had just ended a, a short-term relationship. It was like four months. And my ex just basically said that he was going to spend the rest of his life destroying mine. And he kind of went on this this rampage and and you know, would send me hundreds of text messages and emails and contacted all my f- friends and family and told them, you know, heinous lies about me, you know, being a whore and a drug addict and, and, 
Um, and then he and contacted my workplace and told he would send me emails with naked photos and videos of me and then tell me that he had blind copied all the judges and, and lawyers that I was in front of. Then it it continued to escalate. He started filing false police reports against me. I got arrested and it was uh, it was just a um, scorched earth attack and nothing in my life was was normal after that. Um, I, you know, was there were some days where I would be arguing for one of my cases at work and then I'd have to go up, you know, like to the 17th floor of the court building and then I was the one on trial. And when I got to the other side of it, it took about six months after he started for me to get my order, my permanent order of protection and for him to plead guilty. I just like, I just nothing, nothing, nothing was, was normal. And during that process, I had tried to get a restraining order that protected me, not just from him contacting me and being in my physical space, but also um, to stop him from from doing all this stuff on, online to stop him from um, sending the naked pictures and videos that he had of me. And there was this like eureka moment where the family court judge was like, sorry, Ms. Goldberg, I know you're a lawyer, but I think you should get one. You've got a First Amendment problem. And I was like, what? And somebody's like free speech, right? To be able to express himself through the naked pictures of somebody else. That is oh insane. So anyways, long story short, I um, I was at the lowest of low points and, you know, my family hated me because he he made like fake IRS complaints about them. My family was angry because I had inflicted this drama onto them and scared them. And hadn't I seen the red flags with this guy and, you know, oh, that kind so of thing. Because um, they had, of course. You know, I kind of had this like this breaking moment where I just wanted to kind of die. Um, and I was, I, you know, just went back. I was, I was visiting a friend. It's around New Year's Eve uh, between 2013, 2014. And I just came back to New York and I quit my job. And I started, I quit my, my last day was January 23rd of 2014. And then I started the law firm the 24th. And I just had like $3,000, which was like vacation days that, that I had accrued, that I cashed out. Wow. And I just, I started the law firm just not really knowing anything about how to run a law firm, but knowing that I want, that like there were other people like me and that I needed to become the lawyer who I hadn't been able to find. And so it's been five years now and I've got a staff of, 11, five other attorneys working for me. We've got hundreds of cases. We've gotten more than 20,000 images off the internet. I've worked really hard getting revenge porn legislation passed around the world, or not the world, but the, the, the country. New York is still lagging. And it's become so much more than I ever could have dreamt for. I used to work, um, I was in mental health and I, I worked with trauma survivors. And it sounds like right after your traumatic event, you you went right into practicing. Like that's, yeah. so you just dove in for yourself. Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, I was um, I was very raw, and and still 
in a lot of pain and still going through PTSD. And I would be walking down the street at that period of time. And I mean, basically anybody that I passed would, I'd get like this jolt because I would see his face on their body. Oh. And I do think that helping people was, was healing. And I see that with my clients now where when they can help, like some of my clients who, who are on the other side of their, their crisis actually have you know, come back and helped other clients, you know, just to kind of give them moral support, like in their court cases and stuff. And it's like, that is, is really transformative. What, whatever happened to him? He's uh, kicking around. Oh, no. I've gotten a couple people have come to my office needing help. And then I f have found out that it's uh, for help against him. Oh my God. He's, you know, like I, there are like certain personality types uh, that that are recidivists. Yeah, that's just like this is how they interact with everybody in their in their uh, world. Basically, I, I um, have created like this little taxonomy of offenders, and I have four types: the psycho, the asshole, the perv, and the troll. <laughs> Legal terms, of course. Yeah, they're in the DSM and, now. It's and me. so this is the psycho. The the psycho is somebody who is hell bent on. The destruction of, of of another person, and basically they will give up everything else in their life to destroy somebody else. And usually, it's um, after the the failure of relationship. And so there are really really um, clear patterns, very clear patterns of of kind of the early warning signs. And usually, I mean, you can see these patterns like during the courtship phase. So it's it's a really instant connection and like instant marriage almost like you you know meet meet him and then like you never spend another night apart like going forward it's like it's intoxicating it's addictive that 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 connection usually there's manipulation to get you to get the um the victim to share secrets and that creates like a um a really like quick bonding as if He'll he'll disclose a lot. Trust is very important. Trust is incredibly important, um, and you know if if you start disclosing things to another person, you it creates like cognitive dissonance in you, and you have to say, okay, I know I just told him this like thing that nobody else in my life knows. Therefore, he must be somebody really worthy of that. And so you can convince yourself that this is somebody that that you, that you trust just by virtue of the fact that you trust them with with your own information. Um, usually the person um, has no long-term friends because they're so toxic in all, with all of their relationships that they they don't have friends from way back when. They usually can't keep a job. Um, and so they're in professions usually that um, don't require a lot of cooperation. Like no offense to listeners, but the professions I see the most are like failed entrepreneur, musician, professor, and then further down, like cop, lawyer. Interesting. So it sounds like a lot of that is similar with uh, domestic violence patterns. Right? It, I mean, what we're talking about is is domestic violence. It is intimate partner abuse. Um, is that, is it's it not legally? necessarily physical, but a couple other things that usually there's they're reckless with money. And they're in reckless drivers. It's also part. Are you familiar with the Harris Psychopathy Index? Do you guys work with the forensic angle? We uh, um, no, but we should. I mean, like I, 
I don't know that that uh, thing, but part of it is um, so part of it's a history of everything the person's ever done. Part of it's mm -hmm. interviews with people that they know, and then part of it is like a personality inventory and. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of what you're describing from the reckless spending to the obsessiveness to all the layers of manipulation, um, hair would believe are markers of psychopathy. Yeah. I it's mean, the there's scary stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it is, it is that, I mean, just, and I, you know, I have had it come up in my cases. I mean, like people think that like, I'm a revenge porn lawyer and that I just deal with getting naked pictures off, off the internet. But, um, you know, some of our cases are really, really intellectually intense and experimental. Like we have a case where our client also ended a relationship with a complete psychopath who then used the Grindr app to impersonate our client. And over 1,200 men came physically to his home and to his job to have sex with him. And the, the ex-boyfriend would um, you know, create profiles with our client's picture and dick pics and would concoct these um, rape fantasies so to basically set up our client for, for a sexual assault. Um, he would say super racist things so that people would come like ready to like beat his ass. And our client reported it to the, the police like 10 times. He reported obviously to Grindr over and over again, but Grinder didn't exclude this user, and he um, he got an order of protection. He basically did everything that you could possibly do, and it kept continuing. And so he came to my office, and I mean, I was like, "Whoa, there's really only one one other person, one other entity that can control this." And so we reached out to Grinder again, and told them they needed to exclude this this boyfriend. And, and I mean. Matthew was getting people like as many as 23 people a day, like coming into his physical space. Wow. And ha he having to turn them, he could them away. He could have easily been killed. He easily yeah. could have been killed. He easily or or raped or both. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, his whole life was completely upended because of this. And um, and so Grinder to totally ignored me. By that time, I sort of thought I was going to like sail in and save the day because I'd been working with all these different tech companies on getting like revenge porn banned on their platform. So I was like super cocky, like, oh, I can I can solve this with just a, a fast call to grinders like lawyers. And and no, we actually had to get a restraining order. This was pretty um, radical. We got a restraining order against Grinder, demanding that they exclude this user like a Wow. State court judge signed that. And then we um, it got removed to federal court and Grinders lawyers were on the record saying that they didn't have the technology to stop the stop a user from from using their product. And that was another one of those like light bulb moments where I like ran back to my office. I took my my complaint and I amended it and I added all these product liability claims. And I'm like, okay, well, if you've released into the stream of commerce a product that, you know, like where it foresee it's very foreseeable that sometimes it will be misused by rapists, by child predators, by stalkers, and you have no checks and balances to even to address that at all, then you've 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 got a dangerous product. So this this was like a really novel um, approach 
to to like any sort of tech product and we we lost and it was just a we just appealed it in in the second circuit which means that um whatever the outcome is it's going to have a national impact and it's gotten attention from um organizations all over the the country who've weighed in and submitted papers either on our behalf or on grinders behalf um but you know the the people on submitting on our behalf are, are privacy think tanks and and um, consumer products and domestic violence programs on grinder they've got all the lobbyists for facebook and twitter and google who are like the fuck you're not going to start suing us for products liability because i mean that's that's going to bring <laughs> them them to court all the time so you have to forgive my naivete but when you're describing um, both what that man did to your client on grinder and what the uh, person did to you i think well those should clearly be crimes they are crimes um it's just people sort of have this belief and i think it maybe comes from tv or just like thinking the world is a decent place where um you know if you're the victim of a crime you can go to the precinct you can report it and then a law enforcer will go and arrest somebody and it will stop but that's not actually the reality we live in particularly if the crime is something that mainly targets women like a crime related to stalking or sexual assault the the process of investigation can take months and months and months if not years and as it did in in Matt's case i mean it was um well over a year before there was an actual arrest and things get complicated for the detectives apparently i disagree that it should be complicated um, when the evidence is digital evidence and when they have to subpoena tech companies, um, there is a tremendous delay, which is bizarre I, to me yeah. because it's like when you have when you have like evidence from, you know, that that points to an IP address or to a device or something that makes it pretty like unequivocal that like, you know, that links you know, the, the crime to the person much more so than if you're, you know, if, if it's a physical, um, thing altercation where like your, your, your body is basically the, the scene of the crime. And so, you know, it's, I, it, this idea that, that just because it's the evidence of a, of a crime is digital somehow should complicate things for law enforcers. It shouldn't, it should actually make it much easier. You've got great evidence. I, I don't report any dimes, any like um, digital evidence crimes like locally um, because it will take a year and our prosecutors seem to be, at least in, in New York County, um, not, not really embracing of, of the digital evidence that, that um, proves these crimes. Um, but, I, but you've got the, de the uh, Department of Justice the computer crimes and intellectual property. Um, and I've had seven cases, uh, seven of my clients' cases with, like I've routed them through DOJ and we've gotten six sentences. Uh, our, our sixth is gonna be this Monday. And we've actually, our clients, um, one of our clients' stalkers has gotten the longest sentence to date, which was 17 and a half years. Um, which, you know, I, I don't, I'm not really of the, I'm not sort of like a big proponent of like, you know, carceral um, stuff, but, but when it comes to stalkers, 
it's like they do they are recidivists and so it does make the um it a safer place I, I you just reminded me that i have to go back to court because i had a stalker in 2008 um who and i'd written a story it was one of my first feature stories and the stalker um, was calling me. I first thought it was one of my male friends. I was getting calls from block numbers saying, I'm going to rape you and then I'm going to fuck your dead body. Um, I'm in love with you. I love you. And I was just like, and it was so re- over the top that I thought that it was one of my friends. And that's ridiculous. But I happened to have a lot of silly, <laughs> silly male friends who would do that. But then I thought, who the fuck would say rape and kill me? Uh, I called one of my friends who, this guy who was writing for New York Magazine. He was really an oddball. So I said, oh, maybe it's him. No, it wasn't him. So I kept getting these calls and I got, you know, multiple calls, crazy messages, all from block number. So finally I went to the police and this was 2008. The police said, okay, well, we're going to have to call Sprint and get, you know, access to your phone. So they tracked the guy down. Turns out the guy um, worked for the Tribeca Film Festival was like this total like intellectual type. I did not have any relations with him. And it was like totally insane. They went, they they were able very quickly, actually took only like three days. They went and they arrested him in his office and it was like a whole thing. Um, So I had a restraining order against him and it's been, oh my gosh, it's like over a year that I haven't gone down to the court to you know, let's keep doing this. It, yeah. And I don't know actually the law. If I need to keep doing it for the rest of my life, I don't even know the law. But that said, this was before smartphones. This is before Instagram. This is before Facebook. At the time I had MySpace and Friendster, I believe. <laughs> I just had MySpace. And he wasn't contacting me on those platforms. He somehow got my phone number, which is really, really scary wow. part. But it was crazy. And he wasn't, yeah, and he wasn't using any anonymizing software he wasn't using it was before burner phones or anything so that is so that is so unusual did he know you at all like how did he know about you so it turns out there were some friends something some connection there but no and he was he was obsessed he was calling me even from the holding cell and this and they're like this guy's a real loony he belongs in the (laughs) bed and i'm like yeah i mean for sure he does and so they locked him up for like 24 hours and then he lost his job and I never heard from him and I never saw him. That was it. And I haven't, and I, I sometimes from time to time I'll look him up. I haven't done that in over two years. I just don't even think about it anymore, but it was crazy. And I, I'm super impressed by how quickly the, the police responded. That's, I mean, to me, that's a success story. Yeah. I mean, they, they responded quickly. And at the time I was very... I was like, I was a little cocky. I was a cocky little 20 something year old. And I said, listen, you know, Showtime wants to get rights to this, this, this story that I have out. I have a lot going on. You know, like this is, this guy is just after me. You know, I just made it like, I was like, I was like, yeah, this is, this would be a bad Hollywood story. (laughs) And they're like, we get it, miss. And they, they were on it. They were actually really good. But then that's how I actually ended up in another relationship because I need a protector, right? So I met someone and I need a protector. And then that went, that went south, right? Absolutely. It is actually, I think that the relationship after something traumatic happens that can be even like really really toxic yes the protector is like that's 
that's a type. I mean, I think that a lot of the psychos are looking for somebody who's kind of broken. Yeah. And and then they like are super, you know, like, oh my God, I, you know, they're really indignant that something like that happened to you. And oh my God, if I ever see him, I'm going to fucking kill him. And then that just like makes your heart just like completely like, that's just like, yeah. And I said, here, look here. Do you want keys? You want to move in with me? Yeah. It's like, and that was it. The reason that we really, really encourage people to wait after an event uh, before really just diving into dating again is because um, predators, especially people who have groomed people, they look for those signs of people coming up who have just dealt with something traumatic. And it's just that instant psychological manipulation that they'll very, very willingly use, especially repeat abusers and offenders. They can just sense that stuff. Totally. We have um, a lot of clients who are underage, you know, and, and somebody approaches them online, um, you know, and can see from their profile or, or if they were like in a chat room or something, um, you know, when they're, when they're going through something. Mm-hmm. We had like, you know, like the parent just died or um, a brother died. We had somebody who was, who was preyed upon um, by somebody who actually like went to her brother's funeral. Ugh. Um, and, and it's so true that, you know, like if, if they can get you while you're weak and, and do give you a sense of safety, then, I mean, they can just completely control you. Wow. So back to Jessica. So they, they, they lock this guy up for 24 hours. Yeah. Then he's free again. Then he's free, but he had a restraining order against me that he would be arrested if he contacted me. But it's, I mean, it's a piece of paper. Right. You know? So what happens to these guys? They're, they're just, they just float around. They're obsessed with yeah. people. What yeah. is the recourse? It's I think so. Nothing? I mean, maybe things have changed in the past um, 11 years, but I don't know. It's like they, you know, 10 years. We always say like a restraining order, you can fold it up and put it in your pocket and it's not going to stop a bullet. But it is true that that a restraining order is actually a really, really powerful deterrent because sometimes it's like the, the person just doesn't have the self-control to stop and all they really need is just like an authority or a piece of paper telling them they have to and then they will just pivot. It's really strange. You know, a lot of people, especially those who have no money, you know, and, and aren't worried about the threat of being sued, you know, the threat of going to jail is actually something that will will mess them up and will, you know, just deter them. But then, but the really dangerous ones are the ones who like don't give a fuck. Right. You know, they get a restraining order against them and they're like still at it, still calling you or something. And those are the ones you have to be really careful of. If you're going to give advice to a, a young woman who is maybe looking to get out of a relationship and either the partner has threatened to do something like this or she just senses that something very difficult is about to happen, uh, wh- what are some options that they could have? I think my, my first advice is um, to tell somebody what's going on. And basically, if you know when, when you're ready to break up with him, and sometimes it takes a couple tries, you don't owe him a conversation. You don't owe him anything. Um, I think one of the the biggest um, sort of ways that things go wrong is when, um, you know, in, in controlling relationships, it's like there's a lot of fear in leaving somebody that that has is kind of cocooned you. And the victim, and I, I use victim, but it's survivor, whatever 
you want to call it, they, you know, they don't really know. They haven't been independent for a long time, and so, and they're still afraid, sort of, of the approval and the disapproval of of their their partner, and, you know. I always say you don't owe him a conversation. You don't even owe him an explanation. You've been in an abusive situation and go somewhere that's safe and send an email saying a decision's been made and the relationship's over. And this is what you, you know, like people will will find reasons not to do it. Like their stuff, their stuff is at his place or they share a dog together or it's, you know, his dad just died or his birthday is next week or it's Christmas time. Um, but you really have to kind of, if you're in that situation, you have to think about the excuses that you're you're making because there's always going to be something. Um, there's always going to be some compelling reason to stay. But if you're having that kind of negotiation in your head, that itself should be really informative. And none of that stuff, I mean, rent money, um, your, you know, like your stuff being at his place, even like sharing the lease, none of that stuff is more important. All of those things are like, that are issues that you can resolve. Like just get yourself safe, you know, stay with a friend, um, who he won't suspect. And you also like, everybody has people who will help them in these situations, even though, you know, in a controlling relationship, you know, like, um, it can be so isolating that you lose touch with your former friends and your family members. But like those people will help you, you know, when when you're ready, when you're ready for it. And it it might not be the people that were pissed, you know, that got pissed off at you for being in the relationship. But there are other, you know, it might be a, a, a colleague or a, a, a classmate. But like people have been through this, and and there's sort of a, a an alliance of of women who've been through this that will you know, jump at anything to help somebody who's going through it. Call me. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I help people break up. <laughs> it's like one of the, the things my my law firm does. There's a comic um, who's going to do Colbert, and he has a joke about um, getting out of a relationship. And he goes, can you just rip it off? Um, instead of like, people say, just rip it off like a Band-Aid. And he goes, can you just let it just fall off like in the swimming pool? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I like that joke because I I really relate to that. I'm like, yeah, let's just let it fall off. Let's yeah. not. Ri- I don't want to. I don't want the rip off approach. Yeah, we were saying before before we started recording. Um, wouldn't it be perfect if they had an app so you could just delete photos from someone's phone and evidence and text and all that? But that wouldn't be legal, would it? No. So that like okay, you've sent somebody. I'd say you've sent me all of your naked photos. Yes, I sent all of my. Notes. And we've had a bad. We, you no longer trust me with them. Right. And could you just like push, you know, download an app to just like, like suck them back up? Yeah. <laughs> All gone. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. That that does not exist. <laughs> but I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of your listeners probably would would, would, be, love would be down with that. Yeah. So, so say someone sends me a naked picture and then I release it maliciously without their consent. Mm-hmm. Uh, what law is that breaking? So pretend like you're talking to a very stupid person. Okay, which is me. No, very simple. It's just uh, what's the kind of legal 101? Well, there's sort of a a patchwork of laws um, around the country, and like 41 states have like non-consensual porn criminal laws. 
that basically that that criminalizes it. So when when Jessica and I uh, first were talking, I think which was in like 2014, I think maybe there were 12 states. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, this, but was there's this been when like Hunter huge got arrested. The guy who does you up, um, Hunter Moore went up. He wait, you mean was that around the same year? I'm just trying that to was, think about yeah, what... that was that was 2014, I think. Okay. Also, I mean, he was running a, a dedicated revenge porn website and company. Like uh, profiting uh, off of it? He like was you... profiting off of it. He um, actually employed a, a hacker on staff <sighs> who would hack into people's um, emails and then steal naked pictures and then post them. <laughs> so he had a whole a whole business. Um, but what I mean, what we usually see nowadays, I mean, a lot of the the dedicated revenge porn websites have have gone out of business and closed up in the in the last uh, five years. Um, but it's it's usually the distribution is through through apps, through social media, um, through email to to like the the loved ones of, of the victim. Um, but but you'd probably be you know now there there is there's criminal law so um, you stand to to you know be arrested and charged with with a crime in New York State um, against I mean despite a lot of effort on my part uh, does still does not have a criminal law but New York City passed one because they're like what the fuck <laughs> Albany um, wow. and so it's illegal in in our city um, it's like a misdemeanor or something. Um, but there, you know, there, there are finally laws and some of, some of our states also have laws that, um, make it so that a victim can sue. Um, and so, so if you have tons of money, um, if you're like Rob Kardashian sending around black China's naked pictures, then, then, um, you know, she could sue you for, for, you know, millions. Do you think, think there would be less cases if we just had Polaroids? (sighs) I think so. I think it's like the fact that we are all walking around with these little mini photo development studios. <laughs> um, definitely, you know, like that's like it's not just within arm's reach, but it's like literally in our hands at all times and now like on our watches and stuff. Um, yeah, I think mm-hmm. the fact that I think things would have developed differently if not for the Internet. <laughs> It's certainly um, it's all the internet. It makes yeah. I mean, the internet makes it really convenient and easy to destroy another person's life, and it amplifies any anything you want to do. And it makes it um, you know because of our our search engine and Google results um, makes it pretty difficult if you're a victim to to escape um, sort of your past. I used to want to make a T-shirt that that read. Don't Google me, because I used to hate my Google results. It <laughs> bothered me. Now everyone who's listening is going to Google you. Yeah. Now but you can Google me. Everything's fine. What was what was bothering? Well, it was bo- well. You're just going to put it back up. If you yeah. Say. Okay. Never mind. I, I can't even say it because it's just going to screw with my re- search results. So forget it. But the point is, is I didn't like it. it I wasn't happy about it. So um, I had, you know, I had things taken down. I wasn't a porn star, so don't get excited mm. um, or disappointed or whatever you feel. I think it's fine, but that wasn't it. It was it was just a, you know, a racy story that I wrote and certain headlines mm. were coming up and it it annoyed me. I mean, doesn't it strike you as like 
bizarre that one private company basically curates our reputation for us? Yeah. And has that much control? And is that powerful? And that nobody uh, cares, like doesn't seem to bother people, the dystopian techno nightmare that we all live in, yeah. just people don't. Yeah. I mean, people sort of think that, um, that there's something organic about like Google results and like the order of the rankings of, of stuff as if <sighs> like, it's like, no, I mean, that those fucking algorithms are based on like some, you know, like choices and values and, and you know, the, the decision-making of, of the, the people who coded it, who, who are they, you know, like white dudes, right. Who never, you know, are like the victims of stalkers or revenge porn or, or very rarely. Right. Um, there's a million John Smiths that probably work at Google and their results are fine. <laughs> yeah. Do you counsel young people about, um, what to put online, what not to put online, maybe, maybe certain behaviors. Just, should we that just have a rule? No sending nudes in 2019 or like, mm -hmm. you know, maybe. I mean, mm -hmm. if you think about it, um, you know, naked pictures are safer than safe sex. I'm, you know, I kind of always wonder, like my, my parents weren't really like particularly, um, they didn't really talk, you know, like they didn't forbid me from having sex. I just didn't have as a kid, like, or as a, as a, adolescent and, and stuff. I just didn't have it because like, I couldn't find anybody to have sex with me. But, um, but like, I, you know, I always wonder like, would they have rather me like take a naked pictures and share that or like have sex, you know, like as a 15, 16 year old? I don't actually know, like parents, what out there, what do you think? I mean, I, I think I, I don't like spend tons of time counseling people on, on what to put online. I spend more time suing the fuck out of um, somebody who, or like schools that, that discipline my clients if they're, they are like the victim of, of like, you know, some online disaster, like a client's, an eighth grade client's like rape tape went viral around the school and then she was told to leave and she was told to transfer to a different school. Um, but, but in terms of like what to do, you know, I think, you just, I think you just have to be very careful with who you trust. And if you are the recipient of, of, you know, something sexy, um, just, you know, don't, I mean, be responsible. Um, but also, you know, kids are vulnerable to the penal system in a way that we aren't because there've been some, some prosecutors who've tried to make examples out of kids and who've charged them for child pornography and not not the the guy not the you know the 16 year old who's like sending the naked picture of his ex-girlfriend around but charges the the girl because she was she produced the child pornography by taking the picture and then she distributed the child pornography by sending it and then there's also a um you know a third felony for sending it to a minor and so like if an underage victim of revenge porn could be facing much much greater criminal liability than than like the the actual like revenge porner. How can people get in contact with you? Um, through my my website cagoldberglaw.com and there's forms a little form that they can fill out for for us to get back to you or um, I'm very active on Twitter cagoldberglaw um, and 
love to love to tweet. See you on Twitter a lot. And she has a book coming out in September. Penguin Books. What's the title of the book? It's called Nobody's Victim: Fighting Stalkers, Psychos, Pervs, and Trolls. Well, I can't wait for the book. I can't Thank wait you. for all your things. You have so much going on, and I'm very proud of you. And just Thank real quickly, you. if you had, uh, if you were speaking with someone who had gone through a similar situation, what would you say to them? I would say that um, don't panic, but get help. Um, what, what you're going through is serious, and it's going to be ten times harder if you do it alone. Call me. <laughs> <laughs>